WNYC Studios is supported by Zuckerman Spader. Through nearly five decades of taking on high-stakes legal matters, Zuckerman Spader is recognized nationally as a premier litigation and investigations firm. Their lawyers routinely represent individuals, organizations, and law firms in business disputes, government, and internal investigations, and at trial. When the lawyer you choose matters most. Online at Zuckerman.com. Radio Lab is supported by the John Templeton Foundation, funding research and catalyzing conversations that inspire people with awe and wonder. Learn about the researchers making the latest discoveries in the science of well-being, complexity, forgiveness, and free will at templeton.org slash podcast. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. You're listening to Radio Lab from Public Radio WNYC and NPR. Okay. I want to start the show today with a truly remarkable story, <laughs> which at least okay. initially involves this girl right here. Um, hello, I'm Laura Buxton. Laura Buxton is her name. Remember that name. Should take my hair back. And Laura, let's do this like a movie, okay? Like a movie. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Okay, it's June 2001. Yeah. Where are we? Exactly? Oh, we're in a little town in northern England called... Stoke-on-Trent. Stoke-on-Trent. Yep. Mm-hmm. Imagine a little English house in this town and the camera zooms in and there, standing in the front lawn, is little Laura Buxton. She's 10 years old. Yeah, well, almost 10. Whatever. She's a tall girl. Pretty tall for my age. Pigtails. And in her hand, she's holding a balloon. A red balloon. You with me so far? Yep. Okay, so earlier that day, Laura had taken a little card and stuck it to the balloon, and on one side written... My name. Plus a little message. It just said, um, please return to Laura Buxton. And then on the other side, it had my address. Okay, so cut back to the outdoor scene. There she is, standing on the lawn. It's very windy. She's got this red balloon with her name on it, and she holds it up to the sky, to the heavens. And I just let it go. And the wind took it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we were laughing and joking because we just thought it'd get stuck in a tree a bit further down the road somewhere. But that's not what happened. The balloon kept going. All right, now I'm looking at a map here of England, and Stoke-on-Trent is at the top, yeah. so the balloon would have had to go south, like pound, down, down, past Stratford, yeah. past Walsall, yeah. past Wolverhampton, then past Birmingham, yeah. past Kidderminster, past Worcester, yeah. past millions of people, past Chettingham, yeah. people with different lives, different names, past Gloucester, Gloucester, <laughs> Gloucester, and all in all, the red balloon goes about 140 miles south. Exactly against the prevailing wind. Oh, really? Which is a southwesterly. Okay, so finally, when this balloon is all the way on the other side of the country, it begins to descend. Down, down, down. And of all the places it could have landed, you know, in a river, in a factory parking lot, in the sea. Instead, the balloon touches down in the yard of this girl. I live, I live in the countryside in a little village called Milton Lilbourne. Just so you're not confused, this is a different girl than the first one. They do sound the same, but they live on opposite ends of the country. The balloon got stuck in our hedge. But our next-door neighbour found it, and he thought it was just a bit of rubbish, and he collected it up so the cows wouldn't eat it because he didn't want the cows to, like, choke on the rubbish. And he was about to put it in the bin, like, literally. And then he saw the label saying, please send back to Laura Buxton. And he was like, oh, my God. Why? Why would he say, oh, my God? Okay, so check this out. Uh Remember how I told you how the first girl who sent the balloon was 10? Yeah. 
The second girl who received it? I'm ten years old. She's ten. Okay? Okay. Wait, wait, wait there's more, there's more. <laughs> better be Remember how I told you the first girl's name was Laura Buxton? Yeah. Well, girl number two, can you introduce yourself? Okay, um, hi, I'm Laura Buxton. <laughs> what? They're both Laura Buxton? Yeah. No. Yes. Both named Laura Buxton. Yes. You heard me right. A 10-year-old girl named Laura Buxton. Let's go of a balloon. That balloon floats 140 miles and lands in the yard of a 10-year-old girl named Laura Buxton. This is for real. Yeah. I think it might be the strangest thing I've ever heard in my life. It's pretty weird. It's been about eight years since the balloon incident. The Lauras see each other a lot. We managed to get them both into a studio. Hello, New York. This is London. Can you hear me? So, like, we're going to hear Americans through these. Yeah. Okay, back to the story. <laughs> yeah, I got the balloon. That's Laura number two. And I... What did you think at that point? Um, well, I I was quite young, so I didn't really know what to think. I was just like, I better write the letter because, you know, there's someone else out there called Laura Buxton. I must see them. <laughs> so, Laura number two wrote a letter to Laura number one. Dear Laura, I think I put... I'm 10 years old and I live in Wiltshire and I found your balloon and thing is that my name is Laura Buxton as well. So lots of love from Laura Buxton. <laughs> Laura number one. Yeah. You get the note. Got it through the post. Do you remember reading it? I remember reading it because I sort of opened it up whilst I was in the kitchen and it was really quite confusing actually because it was like to Laura Buxton from Laura Buxton. I took it up to my mum and we stood there arguing about it for quite a while. What did you argue about? Well she was trying to tell me that it had come to Laura Buxton. And it wasn't from Laura Buxton. She just thought I was confused. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, fast forward a short while later, the two Lauras meet. It was at one of England's most popular TV shows, Richard and Judy. They'd found out about the Laura Laura coincidence, invited them on. And here the story gets even stranger, because there's Laura number two standing backstage. And down the corridor I saw this girl who looked pretty similar to me. First thing she notices is, wow, we're the same height. Skinny and tall. Got the same color hair. Brownish hair. We're even wearing the exact same clothes. Pink jumpers and jeans. Yeah. So you both had on pink jumpers and jeans? Yeah. (laughs) And as they started to talk... It just kept getting weirder. Well, we'd both got a three-year-old black Labrador. We'd both got a grey rabbit. We'd both got guinea pigs. Really? Yeah, yeah. And they both brought their guinea pigs with them that day. I remember Laura took hers out of its cage, and I had mine on my lap. And we were like, oh, my God. They were identical. <gasps> they were both brown with a sort of beigey orange patch on their bum. Like, completely the same. I was just like, oh, my gosh, how is this happening? Do you believe in miracles? Either of you? I don't know, would you call this a miracle? I'm not sure. I mean, I guess it could be, but I think it's more of a case of fate. Yeah, I'd say it's more fate than a miracle. So you don't think that wind that blew the balloon was just wind? Well, if it was just wind, it was a very, very lucky wind. (laughs) (laughs) The chances are just so unlikely. There must be some kind of reason. What kind of reason? Maybe we were meant to meet, I don't know. But meant by whom? Or what? Who knows, really? (laughs) I mean, only time will tell. It could actually be like preparing us for something else later in life. Who knows? When we're all grannies, we'll find (laughs) out. (laughs) No, we're just young and we're just enjoying life. Oh, Dad. I mean, Mm. what do you look what you're, you're, you know what you are? What? You're a destiny bully. <laughs> you know, because, what do you call like, me, a destiny's bully? Yes. Sounds because like a pop you, band or something. No, it's what you're doing to those girls. No, 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 I wasn't trying to force God on them, if that's what you mean. Yes, you, you, you're you the one who says, oh. No, 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 no. I, was, I was trying to get to the question of how should we think about that story? Mm. Is our world full of magic and meaning and 
coolness or is it all just chance? In fact, that's what we're going to do for this whole hour in Radiolab. We're going to discuss the role that chance, chance plays in so many things. In the lottery, in the flipping of coins, and deepest of all, in us. Yes. On Radiolab. I'm Jad Abumrad. I'm Robert Krulwich. We're about to get random, so stay with us. So let's start with a very basic question. Let's. Uh, uh, Random sounds like it means random. That is, anything can happen at the next turn of the wheel. Like your phone ringing, for example. Oh, God. Random. Sorry. Sorry, sorry. Although it's happened so many times that it's no longer random. (laughs) It's completely predictable. But it does have a very nice kind of lilt to it, don't you think? I'm going to sing with it now. It's a lucky win. It's a lucky win. What a lucky win. And now back to our regularly scheduled program. So let's say that something remarkable happens. Like Dolores. Like Dolores. Can you tell whether this is just the random act of, uh, of an indifferent universe, or is there something truly miraculous and wonderful about it? Excellent question. Thank you very much. Hello. Hey, we found you. you found me. So this is Jad. Hi, Hi. Jad. Mrs. Nice I'm Deborah Nolan. I'm a professor of statistics at the University of California, Berkeley. The reason we'd come to see Deb Nolan at Berkeley is because we'd heard that she plays this game. I like to incorporate lots of classroom activities and demos. One in particular that has to do with randomness. Yep. It's a game that helps your students understand what real randomness actually looks like. And it doesn't look like what you would think. In any case, she takes us into her classroom, us and a few students. Yes. And she sits us down. Yeah, we all sit down. Do we sit in a, in a semicircle? That sounds good. And then she explains. Okay, I'm going to divide the group up into two. I'm going to divide it right here. She splits us up so that group one is three of her students. I'm Zhou Cheng. Richard Liang. Margaret Taub. And group two. Chad Abumrad. And Robert Krulwich. Is us. And the group here. She's pointing at us. I'm going to give you a penny. And I'm going to ask you to flip the coin a hundred times. And the three of you. She points to her students. Your job is to pretend to flip a coin. Meaning they just have to flip the coin in their heads. Kind of guess. How do you think that coin might land? Produce a hundred fake coin flips. And then Deb leaves the room. So our students start whipping through their imaginary fake flips. Heads. Tails. Tails. Heads. Tails. Heads. While we actually flip the coin a hundred times. Heads. Heads. Tails. 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 But eventually, we did finish, and both groups then put our strings of ancient keys up right there on the blackboard. Heads. Tails. Woo! And then Deb came back. Hello. Here they are, huh? Let's look. Okay, so on the board. You've got two sets of H's and T's, which look pretty much the same Mm -hmm. to us. But she looked at their list. The fakers. And then she looked at our list. And right away, she says, pointing at our list. This is the real one. We were like, wow. How did she do that? Well, amazingly, the way she knew had to do with one particular moment. Right. Roll the tape back (laughs) to a moment right at the beginning of our coin flip. Yep. 
tell their tales. Huh? I feel like we have way too many tales. <laughs> <laughs> In a row. It was really spooky. Completely. Like at any moment, a unicorn was going to come galloping in. <laughs> that's how weird it was. But as magical and unrandom as it felt to us, that's how she knew that we were the real flippers. As soon as I saw the seven tails, and then I looked over to the other board, and there weren't any longer than four, I think. That's how she knew. And when we asked one of the guys on the other team, why didn't you put more streaks in your flips? Um... Well, he said what I think we'd all say. I was thinking if we did that too much, maybe she would recognize that we were actually doing that on purpose. In other words, but those streaks just feel wrong. And that's the thing about randomness. Real randomness, when you see it, just doesn't feel random enough. But, says Deb, the truth is... Strange things do happen by chance. Chance. But why is it so hard for us to emotionally accept this? Well, it finally made sense to us when we spoke to this guy. Hi, Jed. Hi, Robert. That's Jay Kohler. And I'm a professor of finance and professor of law at Arizona State University. So here's how the epiphany happened. We were explaining to Jay the unicorn experience in Deb's classroom. Yeah, we got one tail, then we got a second, then we got a third, yeah. and then we got a seventh. And somewhere in the conversation, we started to do the math. Seven like, tails okay, in a row. what actually are the odds? Let me see. Was it heads in a row, tails in a row? Tails. Seven tails, tails in a row. That's one half raised to the seventh power. So we started to do the calculations, and at first, it looked pretty good. Point zero zero, a little more than one percent. Just over one percent chance. Yeah. So it seemed at first that what had happened in Deb's class was super unlikely. Right. But then, Soren, yeah, our producer, Soren, had to go and say this. You know, to be fair, you should tell him that you actually flipped the coin a hundred times. Oh, 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 now you. <laughs> Wait, wait, did you, you were holding back on me. Wait, wait, wait. Because we're too stupid to know that. That's why we have Soren here. Are you saying that somewhere in the hundred flips you got a run of seven? That's what we're saying. That's not a particularly good coincidence. I'm sorry to, to burst the bubble. What do you mean? And then Jay explained it to us. Uh, seven, if you're just doing seven flips, then yeah, getting seven in a row is really unlikely. But if you're doing multiple sets of seven, 14 of those sets of seven, which we were because we were doing 100, then the probabilities start to add up. I mean, it starts small, like 1%, but then that one becomes two, which becomes four, which becomes eight, until when it's all said and done, the chances of getting seven tails in a row somewhere in a set of 100 is, don't hold your breath. About one in six chance. One in six, that's it. That you would have gotten a string of seven so what felt spooky and almost Twilight Zone-ish in the moment is actually... It's not that improbable. Oh. See, that's why you don't want to know it. It doesn't confirm your goosebumps. No, I think the goosebumps are dead now. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry to do that. I still enjoy life. <laughs> the problem, says Jay, is that we were so focused on those seven flips in a row that we'd forgotten about the other 93 that weren't seven in a row. We'd forgotten about what he calls the background we were too zoomed in. So you've got to back the camera up and pan around and look at the complete sample space. And when you do that, he says, what you will realize is that the thing that felt so special. Suddenly you see that it's not so odd in its real context. And this sad lesson goes way beyond coins. 
He gave us this example. 1985 and 1986, Evelyn Adams of New Jersey uh, wins the lottery twice. Back-to-back years. Crazily improbable, right? Right. So if you zoom in all the way in, there she is, Evelyn Adams, standing outside of a convenience store somewhere in New Jersey. She is completely blown away for good reason. The odds that, that those two particular tickets would become winning lottery tickets are one in 17.3 trillion. Wow. <laughs> but Jay would say if you pan the camera back, away from Evelyn, Goodbye, Evelyn. and you look at the whole world of people buying lottery tickets, at this vantage point, you can begin to ask a different question. What are the odds that somebody somewhere, somebody somewhere, will win the lottery twice? And in fact, the answer to that is, it would be very surprising if it didn't happen repeatedly. And it has happened repeatedly. Really? For instance? In Connecticut. Employees of a place called the Shuttle Meadow Country Club, they won twice. A man in Pennsylvania, he won twice a few years later. And California retiree won a Fantasy Five and the Super Lotto in the same day. What? The odds of that were calculated at one in 23.5 trillion. That's trillion with a T. One way, I think, to, to think about this whole thing, I think one example that sort of brings it all home, at least it did for me when I thought about the blade in the grass paradox. A golfer hits the ball down the fairway and the ball lands on a particular blade of grass. If the blade of grass could talk, you know, the, the blade of grass would say, wow. Oh my God! What are the odds, are the odds? that that ball, ball, out of all the billions of blades of grass, everywhere to the right, left to the right, and me! It lands on me. How did it come to be that it just landed on me? I don't know. It's sort of like a miracle, really. And it is sort of miraculous. But what we know is that it was going to land on some blade of grass somewhere, so it's nearly a 100% chance that some blade of grass was going to say, wow, what are the odds that that ball was going to land on me? And if I were that blade of grass, I'd feel so special and chosen. And crushed. And crushed. <laughs> <laughs> Soarin'. The real lesson here, according to Jay Kohler and also Deb Nolan before him, is that if you don't see past yourself, you fall prey to, you know, superstition. Right, or magical thinking. You have to be careful that you're not finding meaning here when when it's just coincidence. Just coincidence. Just coincidence. coincidence, But there are some things, like the Loras, that will never feel like just coincidence. Well, if it was just wind, it was a very, very... Lucky wind. <laughs> so we had to ask Jay. I asked you, sir, is this a miracle? Th- this is not a miracle. It's a good story. But, you know, there are lots of little things I could pick at in the story. You know, like what? it wasn't oh, yeah. exactly. Pick, a, pick away. Well, I mean, it, you know, Laura Buxton didn't find the balloon. Somebody else who knew a Laura Buxton found the balloon. You <laughs> selected out the features that match. And trust me, somebody checked to see if she was an identical twin and said, no, no, that's not a good one. Skip the twin. Okay, how many brothers and sisters? Oh, not the same number of brothers. Skip that. Ah, they both have a rabbit. Let's put that one in the story. They to be totally honest, he's, he's right. What? What do you mean? Well, I, uh, when I was interviewing the Loras, I asked them a bunch of questions, kind of scouting for similarities. What's your favorite color, both of you? Blue. Pink. Scrap that. And what do you guys study in school? Biology, chemistry, and geography. Whereas I'm doing English and history and classical civilization. Mm, Scrap that. What people do is they try to make the story better by showing more similarities. So you're saying that somebody, uh, I couldn't imagine who, doctored the story? (laughs) By the way, I don't want to spoil anything, and this is a trivial comment, but I believe that one of the girls was actually nine. Well, almost ten. And the other one was ten. (laughs) (laughs) Darn it! No! (laughs) 
Oh, well, that the story's ruined. Never mind. Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry to be your most depressing <laughs> guest. Nonetheless, I will continue to tell the Laura story every chance I get on the air, at parties, wherever, because, you know, damn the statistics, it just makes me feel good. I, I think Jay would agree with you. Well, it, first of all, I, we love stories. It connects us. It makes it gives us insight into our own lives. Um, and I think it also gives us a feeling that life is magical. And maybe we don't have to call it magic to enjoy the experience. In fact, I was talking to the Lores and I asked them, what if a statistician were to walk in the room right now and say to you, this was bound to happen. Statistically, this was going to happen sometime to someone. That's fair enough, really, because it just happens to be us in those statistics, so. Yeah, I mean, if that's what the statistician thinks, I mean, yeah, fair game to him. They don't really care. The way they see it, whatever was in that wind, whether it was fate or just wind, doesn't matter. It brought them together. And now, they're friends. Radio Lab will continue in a moment. Hello, my name is Laura Buxton. Radio Lab is funded in part by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, and the National Science Foundation. Radio Lab is produced by WNYC and distributed by National Public Radio. Thank you. Bye. Radio Lab is supported by Betterment. Let's talk about you and your money. You like your free time. You like to relax every now and then. You like to feel totally chill. But your money, your money likes to work. And Betterment is the automated investing and savings app that makes your money hustle. While you're catching up on sleep, your money is up early, earning 11 times the national average in a high-yield cash account. Your money is a multitasker, diversified in expert-built portfolios of low-cost ETFs. And your money is optimized with automated tax-efficient strategies, just like the pros use. Your money is a total workhorse, so you don't have to be. Because you've got Betterment, the automated investing and savings app that makes your money hustle. Visit Betterment.com to get started. Learn more about high-yield cash accounts at Betterment.com. Investing involves risk, performance not guaranteed, cash reserve offered through Betterment LLC and Betterment Securities. Betterment is not a bank. Radio Lab is supported by the John Templeton Foundation, funding research and catalyzing conversations that inspire people with awe and wonder. Learn about the researchers making the latest discoveries in the science of well-being, complexity, forgiveness, and free will at templeton.org slash podcast. Hi, I'm Adam Grant, host of the podcast Rethinking, a show where I talk to some of today's greatest thinkers about the unconventional ways they see the world. On Rethinking, you'll get surprising insights from scientists, leaders, artists, and more. People like Reese Witherspoon, Malcolm Gladwell, and Yo-Yo Ma. Hear lessons to help you find success at work, build better relationships, and more. Find Rethinking wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Chad Abumrad. And I'm Robert Krulwich. And we are talking on Radiolab about things stochastic. Like coin flips and lottery tickets. But let's just push this whole argument another step forward, if we may. Which mean? Let's talk about human beings. Would it surprise you, Jed, if I told you that on the subject of predictability, humans and coins are kind of similar? It wouldn't surprise me because I wouldn't believe it. <laughs> you would believe it if I made you an argument so powerful and so uh, nah, astonishing nah. that you would be falling back on your butt in surprise and staring at me with a kind of simple admiration that you rarely have. <laughs> because here it is. It is. I'm going to talk to you about basketball. 
Basketball? That is a sport where people... First of all, A, what do you know about basketball? I B, know. basketball is a game of skill. Don't even try and pretend oh, that there is like random forces like coin flip. No, no, w- no. Let me make you an argument. No. Let me make you an argument. Mm. Let's just take, to make it really interesting, the most skilled basketball team ever. For example, you could take a look at the 82 to 83 76ers. The Philadelphia 76ers, Maurice Cheeks, quiet, no that's Jonah Lehrer, regular on our show. It's one of the best NBA teams of all time. Along the cheeks. Cheeks to Dr. Jake, swooping underneath, putting it up and in. So, so during the playoff, the, the 76ers were all incredibly hot. <laughs> Take my man, Andrew Tony, an outside shooter for the 76ers. During this run, he was. Sometimes Andrew Tooney would make five shots in a row. He would be considered hot. So that's the deal. Andrew hits his mark once. Hits his mark twice. Hits his mark three times. Now I'm going to pass to him because he's obviously hot. The basket looks to him that it's the size of a soccer goal. He's golden. He's got the gods on his side. And why are we talking about them? Well, because in this situation, you'd have to agree that Andrew Tony was hot, right? Yes. Hot, that's the word. So let me ask, what exactly do you mean when you say hot? Why are you asking me? Because well, he's, he's, he's making a bunch of shots in a row. And if you're on his team and you're coming down the court, you pass the ball to Andrew because he's on a roll. What the fan assumes is that after five shots, he'd be more likely to make his sixth shot. That, to me, just seems like, like uh, common sense. If he's making lots of buckets, of course you're going to pass it to him. If How could that be if, wrong? And did, did the players assume this? Obviously, if they're going to pass. Oh, you know, the players all believe this. The coaches believe this, too? The coaches believe it, so it actually dictates the plays they call. Everyone assumes it to be true, that the hot hand is a real thing. It dictates the flow of basketball games. Thank you, Jonah. But? The hot hand doesn't exist. <laughs> what? You just, you just went through this whole rigmarole about the Sixers being hot. Yeah, well, they were a great team. But a lot of scientists have looked at this question of hotness in sports. And in fact, there's a couple of scientists who actually looked at all the made shots and the missed shots of this 76ers team. And when they looked directly at the numbers, emotions aside, just the data, here's what they found. At the very moment you think you're hottest, you're actually freezing cold. Wait. That can't be right. <laughs> Some of these percentages are, are pretty damning. Take Andrew Tony. During the regular season, Tony made 46% of his shots. 46%. After hitting three shots in a row, which means he's in the zone, he's totally there, his field goal percentage drops to 34%. So that's so what said, I'm saying. That's what I'm telling you, Jenna Boomrat. I've got the numbers here. <laughs> and and the reason seems to be is that Andrew knows he's hot. Or he thinks he's hot, so he's taking less responsible shots. He's taking, you know, the three-point jumper from way beyond the arc. And he assumes his streak will somehow save him. No, it cannot be, because, Jonah, you've, you, you've been to basketball games. You see what happens. I've someone been hits. to basketball games, too. <laughs> you've been to games, and you see that someone makes three shots in a row. The crowd gets up. Suddenly, there's an electricity in the air. Every time the guy gets the ball, everyone stands up in anticipation. You're telling me that's all a figment of our collective imagination? It is a figment of our collective imagination. And it's, and it's especially a figment of the way we kind of calculate streaks. The reason Andrew seems so hot is because he makes three, misses the fourth, makes the fifth, misses the sixth, makes the seventh and eighth. And so then we rewrite 
that essentially random process, this, this mixture of makes and misses, we rewrite it in terms of, oh, it's a streak. Once we think he's hot, we tend to edit what actually happens to kind of preserve that sense of the streak. Ugh. Okay, don't believe Jonah. What about Jay Kohler, our statistician from uh, Arizona State? It shouldn't deviate. I've no Listen to him. I have no reason to think even if whether he missed seven in a row or made seven in a row or made three of his last four, I don't really care. I know that he's a machine. He's like a 52% shooting machine or whatever his number is. No, but he's a, and he's a, he's not a machine though. He's, so he's a, he's a person with, with, uh, with confidence that ebbs and flows. Yeah, I, there's a different, there's got to be a difference there. I agree with you. you. You've just described the psychological theory that makes the hot hand belief so compelling and so hard to get rid of with data. But it just doesn't matter whether the player made three or missed three, their probability of making that fourth shot, that next one, is pretty much the same. This is very, very depressing. Essentially what you're saying is that basketball players are like... Coins. Coins. Yes. Yeah. The fact is, Jed, you are... Kobe Bryant even is more like a coin than any of us had dared to imagine. No. Kobe no. has a pattern. In his case, it's what, 50, 60, 40. Stop it. Stop it. Just... On any given night with Kobe, you think, oh, this is, he's spectacular. But all he's doing is he's just having another night of his very 60 40 life. And that's just the way it plays out. Even on a shot by shot basis, you're saying? Yeah. Each shot seems to be kind of a random event. Exactly. By the way, are you willing to concede that statistically this is a... Not yet. <laughs> it's it's so counterintuitive. It. I, I still, as a basketball fan, I was just watching a game the other night saying, pass it to Kobe, because he's clearly hot. <laughs> um, the, the only exception to this whole, whole literature of streakiness is... Uh, is, is uh, Hockey. No, is... <laughs> 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 the sport no one cares about. Yeah. <laughs> is it is it Joe DiMaggio's hitting streak where he hits for forty two games in a row? I've got it in the book somewhere. Actually, uh, Joe DiMaggio's hitting streak was fifty six games. Fifty six. Yes. Yeah, so Joe DiMaggio is just about the only outlier you can find in professional sports. He's the only real hero. Yep. Well, at least I got Joe. You know what, Jan? One reason you have trouble, I think. More than trouble. <laughs> still well, it's because you, you're not the only person who is a person of pattern and habit. We all are. Come in. Pattern rules the brain. Here's another story. This is, again, from Joan Alera, but this one is about a woman. Mm-hmm. I believe her name is Anne. I'm Anne Klein-Saver. I live in a small country town where most people know other people. Anne was a high school English teacher. I taught for 31 years. She now lives in West Virginia. Wait, just, can you wait this minute? There's someone at my door. I'm sorry. No, no, never... of course. Of course. Anne was an upstanding citizen, went to church every Sunday, <laughs> was just one of those people who... Makes the world go round. Makes the world go round. I'm sorry. Not at all. Anyway, in 1991, I would go to the grocery store... And on the occasions I wrote a check for my groceries, the woman would say, gosh, you're shaky. And she says she began to notice that her hands would start to tremble. Are you all right? But I just thought maybe it was because of working that hard and trying to get everything done. And and it got particularly bad when 
She said she was just walking in the mall doing some shopping. And I was by myself walking, and it was like I stepped off a step that wasn't there. It was the first full-body tremor. She fell. And then my husband was a doctor, and he sent me to a neurologist who diagnosed me with Parkinson's. How, how old is she, by the way? She was, at that point, in her early 50s. What is Parkinson's? Parkinson's is the death of dopamine neurons in the back of your brain, in the part of your brain that controls bodily movement. And so when these neurons die, the end result is first the shaking hand and the loss of feeling and the loss of movement. And then, of course, the tremors get worse and worse. But anyway... Well, the doctor diagnosed with Parkinson's, and he gives her a drug called Requip. Requip was... uh New medicine in 1992. It's a pseudo-dopamine. It basically mimics dopamine in the synapse of the cells. And it was like a miracle drug for me. Her tremors disappear, her symptoms disappear. So she's cured, or...? Uh, If you looked at her on Requip, years after she had Parkinson's, you wouldn't notice anything. She would seem symptom-free. So about seven or eight years go by, all the while they're upping the doses to compensate for the cell loss that's still taking place. And in the early years of 2000, something sort of unusual happened to Anne. Some friends of mine had gone to Las Vegas every year for the basketball tournament, the Final Four type thing. And um, they asked would I like to go with them. And I said, yes, I would. So she went to watch basketball, but as often happens in Vegas, one afternoon she and her friends found themselves in a casino. Had you ever gambled before this trip to Las Vegas? No, I was raised in a household that was fairly religious, and we considered gambling a sin. But as she stood there in the casino in Vegas, she had this inexplicable urge to go to the slot machines. They had frogs and princes and... Cars and cherries and lemons. Push a button, wheels spin, and see what the pictures did. I've never taken any drugs, so I don't have anything to compare it to, but it was like a high. That was sort of the beginning of it. Um, and then and then when she comes back to West Virginia... I couldn't wait to get to a machine I really wanted to play. She discovers the dog racing track. It's a good spot to pull in about 15 miles away from her house. I'd go at 7.30, be there when they opened. And that's, and that's where she would go, and they had a wide assortment of slot machines. Hi, how are you? If I had the money, I'd play all day. From 7 to 3.30 in the morning. Whoa. Um, and then she would go home and play slots. On the computer. On her computer, um, not even for money. Just for the sheer visceral thrill. I would play that the rest of the night. 7.30 the next morning, I'd be back at the joint. Without any sleep at all? No sleep, and she could keep that up for several days in a row. At the beginning of my gambling, I'd wake up in the night and just scream out, Oh, God, what am I doing? Help me, save me. But eventually I became too 
hard hard did I guess to even pay attention to that. Her credit cards are all maxed out. I sold my mother's silver. I sold my silverware. Things that should have been my son's heirlooms stole from the safety deposit box. She steals quarters from her grandkids. Steals quarters from her grandkids? Yeah. Anything I looked at around the house I thought I could get money out of. Everyone who knows her is watching her life fall apart. My house was filthy, dirty, a mess. I wouldn't take time to even wash dishes. She lives on peanut butter. Didn't have any crackers or bread or anything. I just had peanut butter. Um, because that's all she can afford and still leave as much money as possible for the slots. Even when I'd be at church, I'd think, well, so many more minutes or so many more hours I can get gamble. Her husband eventually leaves her. I mean, I loved my husband, but... They got divorced. There's just no decision. Everything is gambling. One of the neat things about gambling is you can do it by yourself. How much money did you lose during those years, if if you don't mind me asking? I lost at least $300,000. $300,000. Which to her is? Is all her life savings. And it's one quarter at a time. Yeah, that's the surreal part. Dad tried several things. I went to a rehab facility. I, my father, I told you I was raised in a really religious home. Sometimes I would say my dad's watching me from heaven and he, he wouldn't approve of this. He wouldn't be so disappointed in me. But Seemingly, I just couldn't stop. Let me pause here for a second, Jad. Uh, I want to just take a moment to try to figure out what exactly is happening to Anne. Yeah, why can't she stop? Yeah. It turns out there may be an explanation if you look into her brain. Remember earlier we talked about a little chemical called dopamine yep. and how she didn't have enough dopamine in her brain, so that was giving her some kind of movement trouble, the Parkinson's. Right. It also turns out to be the case that any time you do something that makes you feel good, your brain spurts out dopamine. For years, that's how scientists saw dopamine, as, as the neurotransmitter of pleasure, the neurotransmitter of sex, drugs, and rock and roll. But you said earlier that dopamine has to do with movement. Well, what is the ultimate purpose of movement from the perspective of evolution? It's to get you to food. It's to get you to sex. It's to get you to a reward. Huh. So that's why the same circuits, the same chemical that controls motivation, that controls what you want, also controls movement. But that turned out it was a little more complicated than that. In the, in the mid-1970s, a guy named Wolfram Schultz decided to take a, a much closer look. And his subject was a monkey. So he would put these very thin needles that can record the activity of individual dopamine neurons in the monkey brain. And they'd put the monkey in a room. And then every day they would walk down the hall to the room where the monkey was. They'd open the door. Hello, monkey. They'd flip on the light. They give the monkey some juice. Here you go, monkey. And then when the monkey sipped the juice, <laughs> dopamine. Happy monkey. Right. But then comes a surprise. He soon discovered something very odd about these neurons. As they juiced this monkey day. Hello, monkey. After day. Hello, monkey. After day. Hello, monkey. After day. Hello, monkey. The squirt of dopamine, which they were always measuring in the monkey's brain, seemed to move forward in time. What do you mean? Well, at first, the dopamine hit when the monkey took the sip of juice. Hello, monkey. 
But after a while, the monkey got the dopamine hit when they entered the room and switched on the light. Hello, monkey. And then after a few more times, the dopamine hit when the researchers' feet could be heard walking down the hall. You see what's happening here? Hello, monkey. Um, not really? <laughs> You're going to have to bring it home for well, me. Well, I'll, I'll do it again then. What the monkey is trying to do is piece together the sequence of events that inevitably lead to juice. Exactly. That's what these cells do. They try to predict rewards. Oh, so this isn't just about movement or about feeling good. It's about finding the pattern of the thing that makes you feel good. Yeah. It's pattern finding. Oh, this is pure pattern recognition. This is essentially how your brain makes sense of reality. In some very primitive sense, it parses reality in terms of rewards. So this is how you get more food in the wild, is, is, you, is you can see the reward before anyone else can. So we're talking about like basic survival stuff here. Mm -hmm. There's one other wrinkle, though, about the dopamine system that makes casinos and slot machines so tantalizing, which is that these cells are also programmed to be very sensitive to surprising rewards. So this seems to be, most scientists speculate that this seems to be your brain's way of telling you, pay attention, you just got something for free. This must be good. Sit here in this nice, comfy velvet chair and try to figure out this reward. So now imagine Anne sitting there at the slot machine. She pushes the button on the machine, the slot machine, and oh my god. And sirens and bells go off, coins clang. And inside her head, her dopamine neurons, they're saying, <laughs> this is wonderful. But now how did this happen? Where did this big reward come from? What did you do this time? Why are you so happy all of a sudden? And it starts searching for something. Dead frogs and princes. Was it the number of cherries that she had just before? Was it that this machine had 13 hits and this was the 14th? I thought I could tell. It has all kinds of pattern-like things. It has bells. It has lights. But the problem is, is that there is no pattern to find. There is no pattern. It's inherently random. It's inherently unpredictable. And while the rest of us might just, you know, give up and walk away. God, I just wasted a hundred bucks on this stupid machine. I should go get lunch. Anne can't go to lunch. Her dopamine system is too powerful, too potent. Oh, because of that drug she's taking. Right. It keeps surging and surging, forcing her neurons to fight, fight hard to find a pattern. That's what's gripping her. Her brain is intoxicated at the possibility that it will learn how to succeed, that it will crack an uncrackable code. I thought I was good at stopping the machines, in fact. She told me a story about she would go to buy milk um, and, and then spend the next 12 hours with the milk rotting next to her as she puts quarter after quarter after quarter into this machine. Were you surprised when you learned that the medication might be responsible for your gambling addiction? I mean, someone said to me, this medicine will cause compulsive gambling? I would have thought they were crazy. It's just at that time where the first studies come out showing that this is actually a common side effect of Recrep. Really? So there were other ands appearing in other places? Same deal? Absolutely. Basically, after my neurologist took me off the Recrep... Her compulsion disappeared instantaneously. Almost immediately. That fast? Well, within a week, I'd say. Wow. It was gone. I haven't gambled for nearly three years. Did her uh, Parkinson's return? Yeah. I have tremors a lot worse. I've recently gotten a cane. I have trouble walking. I use a walker. So 
the price of not being a gambling addict is living with debilitating Parkinsonian symptoms. But my son, let me finish about my son. When I told him after the quick gambling, I said, son, I sold things that belong to you that you should have. And he said, mom, those are just things. It's just really great to have you back. Radio Lab will continue in a moment. Hi, I'm Maddie Weiner calling from Louisville, Kentucky. Radio Lab is supported in part by the National Science Foundation and by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, enhancing public understanding of science and technology in the modern world. More information about Sloan at www.sloan.org. Radio Lab is supported by BetterHelp. Whether it's already 2 a.m. on a fun night out, graduation time, a new year, we can find ourselves wishing we had more time, wondering where it all went. But there's a question. If we were magically given that time back, what would we do with it? Perhaps you'd spend more time with a friend that you've lost touch with or petting your dog or just noticing the sweetness of doing nothing. The best way to let those special things into your life is to know what's important to you so that you can make it a priority going forward. A therapist can guide you through the process of defining your values and understanding your priorities so you know what things you can spend your time on that will really fulfill you. BetterHelp offers convenient, affordable online therapy that comes to you. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Learn how to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Radiolab today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Radiolab. Radiolab is supported by TurboTax. TurboTax experts make all your moves count, filing with 100% accuracy and getting your max refund guaranteed. So whether you started a podcast, side-hustled your way to concert tickets, or sold Hollywood memorabilia, switch to TurboTax and make your moves count. See guarantee details at TurboTax.com guarantees. Experts only available with TurboTax Live. Hello, I'm Jad Abumrad. And I'm Robert Krulwich. This is Radio Lab, and our topic today is, you want to say the word? Stochasticity. Stochasticity. S-T-O. Which is a wonderful and fancy word that essentially means randomness, chance, yep. like the kind that's built into flipping a coin or uh, playing the lottery, or to take things deeper, when you breathe. Krull, which think about the air that's flowing around your head right now. It's full of atoms and molecules that are flying about and smashing into each other and colliding and shooting off in different trajectories that can't be predicted. It's totally chaotic, right? Mm-hmm. Until you breathe it all in. When you do, things get predictable. Can I release? Nope, nope. Okay. okay. The point is when you breathe in, all of those chaotic fluxy molecules come in and become a part of the machinery that is you. They go into your blood. They go into your cells, which are themselves these little factories. Factories full of even tinier factories like mitochondria. What are mitochondria? I'm not really sure. But I do know that's Jonah Lehrer again, himself, a factory of insight. Factories full of um, these intricate things. 
which which work and you can understand you know this gene makes this protein which makes this organelle which does this thing for the cell this process is Jonah of taking in blah, flux and giving it a shape giving it an order that is what life does in fact you might say it is the definition of life. The closer you get, the more you kind of stand in awe at the exquisite engineering. There is a sense that life is simply the world's most elegant clock. Nicely put. Now, if life is a machine, mm-hmm. you would think that the most clock-like, most machiney part of life would be all the way down at the bottom. I would think so. Which, for our purposes, is when a gene makes a protein. Gene, protein, gene, protein. This is the basis of life. So you would think it's got to be orderly, it's got to be predictable. Otherwise, none of us would be alive. (laughs) (laughs) It is a very predictable, orderly system, so we all believe. <laughs> but then we spoke yeah. to this guy. Am I talking? Have I been? Have I been talking? Yeah, you are. Yeah. Okay. And he um, mucked I mean, things I up a bit. This way. Well, what's your name? My name is Carl Zimmer. He's a science writer like Jonah. Uh, I write a lot for the New York Times and Scientific American and Discover. I blog. And he told us that uh, this whole genes making protein situation. Here we are again. As TikToky an affair as we've always assumed it to be. In fact. Scientists have never actually seen it. Well, I mean, it's very happen. small. But finally, scientists have figured out a way to turn on a light when it happens so they now can see a gene turning on a protein. Literally see it with their own eyes. Yeah. And what they saw well, was astonishingly unclock-like. You know, at, at the fundamental level, it's just sloppy. Sloppy. And <laughs> that's the best word for it. In fact, in our interview, he used that word 42 times. Sloppy, sloppy, sloppiness. Sloppiness. Sometimes use this word. Random. Or this. Fluctuating. In this Noise. One. Chaos. Noise. Definitely use that one a lot. Noise, Jumble. Noise. Noisy. Accident. Noisy. Noise. 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 Noisy. Sloppy. Chaotic. Noise. Sloppiness. Sloppy and fluctuating. It's, it's fluctuating. really crazy in there. <laughs> he started by telling us about this experiment that happened in California at Caltech. Hmm. Involving a little tiny bacteria called E. coli, which is Carl's favorite. <laughs> Indeed. Yes, yeah, so these are E. coli. These are harmless residents of our gut. And they're also... Would you call them creatures? They're creatures, sure. They they sense their world. They make decisions. They they feed. They reproduce. Okay. They have genes like us. They've got 4,000 genes. I think they are earn the title creature. And these creatures are actually very similar to our own cells. Their genes make proteins just like ours. So what these scientists did was they took some E. coli that were exactly the same. Clones. In every single way. They're genetically identical. And then they put the whole batch in a dish, and they said, okay, everyone, we're going to turn on your genes, start making proteins now. And they watched. Because like you said earlier, they had found this new way of getting the E. coli to... Glow. Every time it's genes, made a protein. It seems like it ought to be like just flicking a switch. Yeah, you turn on the genes, click, protein, 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 turn it off. 
turn it on. Protein, 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 turn it off. Couldn't get simpler. This is like a basic function of biology. Yeah, this is biology 101. And again, these are genetically identical E. coli. Meaning they've got the same genes, they're making the same proteins, so they should glow the same. Right. You just expect this steady glow. In all of them. Nice and steady. And that's not what happened. You, you, you could start with like an individual E. coli and say, okay, well, what happened with that one? Um, it didn't start to glow. It started to flicker. There'd be a little bit of light, no light, a little bit more light, then maybe a sudden flash, then dark again, then a little bit of light. Hmm. And so they were expecting... Yeah. And what they got this time was... It was completely defective. Like a car with no muffler going... More troubling still, when they looked at E. coli number two, it too was defective. Except in its own unique way. Two had his own thing going. Same with number three. He had his own thing going. I mean, they're genetically identical. Same with number four. This is essentially the same creature in many different copies. And five. Six, two. But. And seven. Each one was flickering in its own. Number eight. Pattern. Nine. Chaos. Ten. Fluctuating. Eleven. Sloppiness. Noise. Chaos. Jumble. Chaos. Sloppiness. Chaos. Jumble. Random. Sloppiness. Noise. Random noise. 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 Chaos. Noise. Sloppiness. Noise. 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 Now this noise would not be a problem if it's just a bacteria we're talking about. But according to Carl... It's everywhere. Everywhere in us. We are built, he says, on a foundation of chaos. This is very puzzling to me because if down at the deep level of our DNA, mm -hmm. there's just this random... Mayhem. Mayhem. Bedlam. How do you go from bedlam up to the organization that I think I represent. I wake up in the morning, I go to sleep at night. I get hungry, I eat. I breathe in, I breathe out. Listen to my heart. I am very, very orderly. I don't know how you get from this to this. That's right. I mean, so somehow, all of this sloppiness has got to be somehow tamed because we're alive. I mean, it's not total chaos in our bodies. But... But, you keep... This sentence never seems to quite finish. <laughs> but we don't know how that happens? Is that what... We have some ideas of how it happens. You know, as, as scientists start to understand how genes work with other genes, they can see ways in which you can, you can um, filter out the noise and keep... Keep the good signal. Keep the music. Okay, so do you want to sit for a second? Uh, sure. Where do you want to sit? Uh, anywhere, really. Now, now, this I find really cool. The research on this stuff is really new, but Carl says one of the ways that the body may do this... Testing. Hello, hello. ...may go from like... ...to... ...is by doing something that I actually do on the show all the time, which is use a noise filter. The body may have engineered its own noise filters. I'll just give you an example. 
from my world. And this is the honest to God's truth. I have a friend <laughs> named Little Wing Lee. Hey, Little Wing. Hello, Jed. Tell me what you're holding in your hands there. In my hands, I have two audio tapes. And Little Wing just recently called me up. She said, I've got these two cassette tapes. They're really old. I think they were made in the 70s. My mom found them in her attic. And they're of my grandmother. One's labeled Mima Sings. Singing. singing old slave songs and old hymns. Now, Little Wing's grandmother died last year. She was 99 years old. Wow. <laughs> and they were really close. Yeah, very close. They used to call me Little Mima when I was a kid. So. so she's got these tapes. She wants to hear them. The problem is if you put it on for more than three minutes, you get annoyed. And there's that weird, like, It's too noisy. She wanted to know if I could do something about it. Yeah. So real quick, here's what I did. I put it into a computer launched an EQ program, found the bass noisiness, which was around 600 hertz, dialed that down, like so. Then I found the high hiss frequencies, which are around 2000 hertz, dialed that down. Ah, now, as a final step, I just kind of located the voice around 1000 hertz and dialed it up. Okay, so it's not a flawless process. I mean, now she sounds like she's coming out of a well, but for the first time, you can hear her voice. I don't know. This is the first time I'm hearing this song. But it seems like she's describing the night that my grandfather passed away. Talking about the doctors telling her that my grandfather has passed. And then she's describing putting a fern in his hand. And she said it should be a rose. It was the end. The thing that's applicable here is that we started with this, and then just by bringing certain frequencies down and others up, we ended up with this. This might be how it is in the body, that you've got this noise all the way in the bottom, these genetic circuits which are spitting out messiness, but somehow just on top of that are other genetic circuits which are cleaning it all up, giving it a shape. <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> Is that not right? Not quite. Damn it! Science! <laughs> <laughs> what, what's wrong with it? Well, in our cells, there's no grandma. What do you mean there's no grandma? You don't start off with some very clear signal that gets masked by noise. The noise is there from the start. It's noise, and then whoop! All of a sudden, you have this beautiful song. Carl went on to explain, and it took like an hour for us to finally get this. There's nothing but noise down there at the bottom, and yet somehow the song emerges like a phantom because it seems like the noise is somehow filtering itself into music. Mm -hmm. So if we were to get the analogy right, Little Wing would hand Jad a tape with just fragmented sound. Little bits of Mima. Little bits of Mima in all kinds of random ways. Maybe she gave you eight or nine tapes. And somehow he says it all starts to kind of get into a network where this one filters that one and that one filters the other one and the other one filters that ninth one. And out of all of that comes grandma, comes a song. The song of a living, regular organism. Mm -hmm. Nima literally, I mean, grandmas are made from chaos. <laughs> I love that. Mm -hmm. You say, mm-hmm, like it's almost like... It seems like a miracle that when you think it stands up and walks. <laughs> but see, the thing is, you, you've hit, I mean, we are talking about something that scientists don't understand yet. Yeah. So I don't have, so there's not a, uh, 
If, if you want to have a part of this show where you say, and this, people, is how it all works. Can't do that. No. But here's the thing. If you want to get fruity about this, you could say, and I put this to Carl, that if all the way down at the bottom of us there is this uh, fuzz that cannot be predicted, then in some sense we're free to be whatever we want. Hmm. Well, you know. I mean, look, I can sit here and concentrate and I can think any thought I want to right now. Any thought? Sure. But you can't think about a poem from second century China. Do you do you think that do you think that could you make an equivalence between loose mechanics and sense of freedom? Well, um, (laughs) you know, I mean, does the the sloppiness and the floppiness of of uh, a protein clamping onto your DNA scale up to what you're going to be when you grow up? On Radio Lab, yes. Okay. All right. <laughs> well, here we are then. It's called Stochasticity. Flip that coin and what do you get? Heads. You get a Stochasticity. If by chance it's happenstance. Hello, this is Carl Zimmer. Radio Lab is produced by Soren Wheeler and Jad Abumrad. Our staff includes Ellen Horn, Lulu Miller, and Dean Capello. With help from Jennifer Madsen, Michael Raphael, Anne Hepperman, Jonathan Mitchell, Amanda Horanchek, Charles Choi, Emma Jacobs, Al Wetskin, and Ike Viskandaharaja. The staff would really pronounce this word. The Stochasticity theme song was created by Josh Kurtz and Shane Winter. Special thanks to Lil Wingley and Mima. <laughs> Visit Radiolab online at radiolab.org, where you can comment on this show, ask random questions, and hear the entire Stochasticity theme song. Anyways, this is Little Wing. <laughs> Thank you. Bye. There's a lot going on right now. Mounting economic inequality, threats to democracy, environmental disaster, the sour stench of chaos in the air. I'm Brooke Gladstone, host of WNYC's On the Media. Want to understand the reasons and the meanings of the narratives that led us here? And maybe how to head them off at the pass? That's On the Media's specialty. Take a listen wherever you get your podcasts.